You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Feeling your breath on the back of my neck Fighting to push you away This could be something I wanna forget Don't blame me if I wanna stay No, it's not right But I need someone like you Oh, I can't deny Though I try I just want you If you could let on the day I get so nervous when you get too close it's sad that I need you to save me no it's not a ride but I their new single love like that you're on in your face on 3cr with james on today's show we chat with sky we also chat with tanya george and play her new single normality and later Catherine barrett joins us about queer strong and the kindness pandemic 3CR. well this week i chat with melbourne musician sky and sky begins our interview by describing the experiences that led to the creation of love like that Definitely a bunch of stuff in my own life. <laughs> I was going through my own story about falling in love with someone who wasn't available, but was definitely making me feel like they were into me as well. And it just became this song of unrequited love, basically. And and wishing I had the love that they they had with their partner. Yeah. So it sounds complicated. It sounds like there were some games going on. Yeah, it was complex and um, I needed to write about it to just 
kind of get it out of my system and and start the healing process and start letting go. And did you find that that was cathartic? Did you find that you were able to to let go by writing the song? Definitely, yeah. I think it took a little bit to because I was I had a session with Bree and Andy, um, and it was definitely a little bit to get into it and to actually start talking about it with them, just because I hadn't met them until that day. So, so once we started, like I just I felt like I was releasing something that I'd been holding on to for many months. So yeah, definitely cathartic. So tell us about your writing collaboration with Andy Hopkins and Bree Clark. Yeah, um, the collaboration with Andy and Bree was really, really lovely. Um, I think we we just created a space that was really safe and um, just accepting of our vulnerability. And I think that um, I just really trusted the space to, to write about um, what I was going through, and and from there we just we just started um, brainstorming different different ways to go around the topic, and also playing around with different chords, and started out with like some some gibberish um, kind of melodies to 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 fit with the chords, and then and then started piecing the lyrics together. But, but yeah, it was a really good session, and I'm really thankful I I met those two. So how did you meet them? Um, I believe management set, set it up with us and, and I, I, I'd heard Bree's debut. I don't know how I found her song, but once I heard it, I was, I was really in love with the way she writes music. So I think I brought up her name with management and they put the pieces together and then we, we just set it up when I went to Sydney back in December of last year. So what was Bree's song that you found so alluring? Um, I think it's called Giving Up, I believe. I think it's the only song she has on Spotify now. But, um, some, something about the instrumentation and, and, um, the simplicity of the lyric that just, just had me completely still. And, and, um, I don't know, I just kept repeating it over and over and really wanted to get an opportunity to work with her. Tell us more about that stillness. Uh, it sounds like creative, you know, overdrive in some ways. It sounds like, it, you know, standing still got your creative juices flowing, which is interesting for a songwriter. Yeah. I think that um, with me and songwriting, a lot of the times it it can be a long process, but if I if I create some space to be still and, like let the thoughts and topics marinate. I feel that I create something a lot, a lot more grounded, and something that um, I can resonate more with. There's definitely times when I um might be like writing really quickly and like the energy is just um, really intense, and that, that that's just what the song needs to do. But I, I just felt with this song, and also from listening to Bree's song that stillness was needed to, to write the song. Yeah. It sounds like you're a very intuitive songwriter and sometimes you just need to pause to kind of, you know, process those emotions and to feel them with a bit of kind of, you know, retrospection. Yeah. I, I hope I'm that kind of songwriter. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that sometimes, um, sometimes what we do is, 
is isn't too deep and sometimes it's just about having fun but sometimes um i really need to go inwards with with songs and and yeah be intuitive with it and and take time to to see what the song wants of me yeah i read that uh when you were a teenager you very much were drawn to female vocalists. And then when your voice broke, uh, you kind of had to work your voice back to create that more feminine sound. Can you tell us how you did that? Yeah. um, I don't know how I did it. (laughs) I think I was just really, um, I think I've, I've just always been really passionate about female voices and, and just the, the feeling I get when I sing, in that register. And, um, it just came from endless nights singing until my voice was honestly like completely gone. Cause I didn't know what was happening at the time when, when my voice broke, you know, back in year eight or whatever. Um, so it was just about understanding, um, the limitations that I had then, but always striving for something that I didn't quite have yet and always challenging, um, I don't know what it means to be a male vocalist and just, just artists generally and from, from lessons and just always pushing it. Um, I was able to get back that, that higher register and like that strength in my voice and just, just honestly a lot of discipline and like time put in. Yeah. It sounds like gender labels don't really suit you as an artist. It sounds like, you know, almost non-binary is, is a term that would best describe you as a singer and musician. Yeah, I, I hope I hope so. And I hope that it's it's something that is androgynous and something that isn't defined by my gender. I think that um yeah. That growing up I just there's such a a difference between male vocalist and female vocalist and I think that there's so many singers singers out there that are that are really testing that like the binary which is really cool because it allows different voices to to cross over and to to just be a voice and not not necessarily like the gender behind the voice which I think is that that's why I love music it's just about the vocals you know yeah you talked about how it felt when you were kind of you know working your voice back and describe those emotions those feelings yeah um definitely a lot of frustration trying to get my voice back to how I wanted it to sound. Um, and there's definitely moments now when it gets really frustrating when I, when I find limits to it, but I think just, um, having some incredible music idols to just push me has helped me get past that frustration and, and, and feel empowered and I don't know, passionate about it. Like listening to Beyonce and the things that she can do with her voice is it's just incredible. And it's just allowed me to to keep pushing through the frustration and um I don't know. Be okay with those um stepping stones towards, you know, reaching the goals. You're listening to an interview with Sky on three CRs in your face. It sounds like you do a lot of training with your voice. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I think that as as of late, I haven't been doing much training for my voice, I think, because 
um, being in lockdown, I'm stuck in my space and I just need to sometimes be away from singing. But growing up, um, definitely a lot of, just a lot of singing. Like I've just never really stopped. And I think that's, that's what's helped me grow as a singer. Just like, I have thousands of voice memos of me trying to sing songs that are way too high at the time, but, um, I just always pushed through it and, um, had some really great singing teachers along the way. So made sure I didn't do any damage or anything. Yeah. Just kept on going. So what kinds of exercises do you do when you're pushing your voice to ensure that you don't do that damage? Yeah. Great question. Um, I think different techniques that align with, um, a practice called, um, a still voice training. And I think by having, um, practices that come from a certain training has helped me come back to it when I, when I've not known how to approach something, um, just different things about setting up your body and, and staying relaxed and, and listening to your body has been, um, an important thing. Cause I can definitely feel when I'm pushing and when it's, when it's straining and when that does happen, I, I take the time away from it and, um, and really rest my voice and don't push it because if I push it, then I know that like, there's no going back with the voice sometimes, or it takes a lot longer to get back once you've done that damage. So I think just listening to my body and, um, being aware has been important. Where are those pressure points in the body? in relation to your voice? Um, for me, it's, it's, it's usually just like the tongue and the throat and, and, um, different, different parts of my neck. And I find that if I'm straining, like different muscles of my neck get tense as well. So it's, and it just kind of goes out from there. And sometimes if I, if I'm vocally fatigued, I can sometimes make myself sick from the stress that I've put on that area, which isn't very good. So I don't know. It's, it's just about kind of being aware of any tension in my neck. Cause that's where I hold all of my like anxiety and like stress. So, yeah. So it sounds like posture, but also breathing are incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, deep breathing and, um, being as relaxed as possible. And, um, also different, um, breathing exercises where, where you tilt your head and like breathe in and out really slowly and then go back to like a neutral position, then continue with those kind of movements. Um, it's really great. It's interesting because when you were describing your, your songwriting processes, that sounded very intuitive and your singing approach to your body sounds very intuitive as well seems to be a theme that works for you musically. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you've got a deal with uh, Universal Music, a publishing deal. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so that publishing deal came about, I think we've been talking about it since last year, but I officially signed with them in April. And it's just been really awesome to have, um, just to, to keep on building the team and of people that are supporting me and create other opportunities that aren't purely my own music. And that and they give me that opportunity to make money as a musician, but not with my own music. I think that was definitely something that has been weighing on me for the longest time. Like, how am I going to make 
enough money to like live just at, with my own art. But publishing was something that gave me that security and took away that pressure of it just coming from me and and my own art. So um, it's definitely been awesome um, to have that. Yeah. How has Melbourne's lockdown impacted on your songwriting? Ooh, it's definitely impacted a lot um, in, in different ways. I think that at first um, myself and a lot of my peers saw it as an opportunity to, to be like, okay, let's just do all the songwriting then. Let's just, there's no limits now. So I, I wrote like seven songs in two weeks and was crazy productive. But then like from that, like completely crashed and, and entered like this really neutral zone of not really knowing how to, how to go about it and what the, what the why was. I think that with live gigs, it creates, um, a lot of reason to why us musicians do what we do. So it's definitely been a battle trying to figure out, um, the purpose behind my songs and, and, and that motivation that I had before the lockdown happened. Yeah. What answers have you found, discovered about those purposes behind your songs? Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out the purpose a little bit for some things, but I think I've definitely, I've definitely seen how incredible I can be by myself. And I think I was putting so much weight on other people and collaboration, but there's a lot of tools that I can give myself and I, I hadn't really acknowledged it until like being alone and needing to vocal produce and and um, do some production by myself and and that's been really empowering. Just knowing that um, I have a lot a lot of skills to bring to the table and and that um I can really paint the vision um, if I need to. But in saying that, collaboration is incredible, and I wouldn't want to change it for the world. But yeah. Um, I, I, I felt a bit like a boss sometimes, which which has been good for my own sense of self. <laughs> it sounds like you've really discovered the tools to be a self-sustained storyteller with your songwriting. Yeah, I think I think we've we've had to like kind of push through it and and figure out how to go about it ourselves because um, I know that me and a lot of other people really love what we do, so so it's important to keep doing it. Sky, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
feelings, yeah, flowing down my bloodstream No one hugged me after someone mugged me One, two, three, four things happened to me Fundamality, I was stuck in a beat Easy smoking water through a pipe, yeah Must have an unhappy life, yeah Hashtag your emotion with a broken knife, yeah How nice, how wise Your logic, you sacrifice Your opinion, you ask for advice I've milk you drunk, it twice I've milk you drunk, it twice No Guess we're all tattooed, monsoon, human, we'll be extinct soon, clone what we see on TV, taking our originality, but yes, who asked me, just a girl with a stupid dream, how nice, how wise, your logic you sacrifice, your opinion you ask for advice, I've milked you drunk it twice, I've milked you drunk it twice, no chatted with Tanya and she begins our interview by describing the life experiences that inspired the creation of Normality. Yeah, so Normality came across, I mean, as you can probably understand uh, straight away that we're not living sort of our normal lives in 2020. And um, I don't know, I just kind of came across this, this, this track to question what is normal? What is considered normal to one person and not to another person? Um, you know, what are the social norms? So yeah, I kind of came up with this song and it's sort of like, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily the most normal person in the world. So anyone who, who, who thinks that I, I don't kind of live a normal life, they can be sort of, I guess, mad at me. So you actually wrote the track after COVID hit? No, the, that's the strange thing as well. I had a feeling that there was a massive shift about to emerge <laughs> and I had a feeling that contact, I don't know why, it's a bit trippy, but I felt like contact was going to just drop between humanity. I don't know why, you know, with the whole uh, keeping distance from one another. And that's why there's like a, a line in there that's like um, somebody like mugged me, but nobody hugged me. So it's kind of like I've kind of future written. So yeah, this song came, came out at a really strange time. And then I sort of finished it as covid um, hit and the song just suddenly made sense. Everything made sense. Wow, I don't think I've ever interviewed a psychic songwriter before. 
sound like that, right? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I sense too there was a, almost a satirical theme running through the song. Uh, is that a fair call or am I off the mark there? Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's like a, I guess you would say it's me trying to not um, surrender to sort of society's um, usual conditioning, you know? Wow. Yeah. So I, I noticed in the in the promo uh, for for the track that you identify as bisexual. How has your sexual identity influenced you as a singer songwriter? Um, I would say it sort of opens my mind a lot to you know understanding humanity and and everyone's differences and where everyone's at a lot more because sometimes I've had you know. <sighs> Being a bisexual can be difficult sometimes because you can kind of get it from both ends. You can, you know, people can be like, oh, why are you on the fence? It sort of pushed me just to be really, really trustworthy in, in, in myself and trustworthy, trusting myself to just, you know, um, know who I am, you know, and not be pushed around in any way sort of about um, who I love or, or the way I'm feeling. And, um, yeah, and I guess that process came into my music because it's like when you loop and you you do this kind of style that you hear it with this EP, um, you have to trust yourself live or you'll stuff it up. <laughs> so it's like a perfect metaphor for life. Um, but, yeah, so the, the looping process, if you hesitate or you kind of feel awkward about it, you can't, um, you know, it won't come out as naturally and you, you'll probably stuff it up or you'll probably uh, be a bit pitchy or, you know, you can hear the hesitation behind the loop or you might be out of time or something. So it's sort of like the same thing with my sexuality. It's like I've just got to be confident about it and I've just got to not give a toot what anyone else thinks about it. It's just who I am. <laughs> and, of course, we have Bi Visibility Day on the 23rd of September, so the release of your, your single is very, very timely indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and also really shows how much, you know, further we need to go as a society in relation to bi awareness. Yeah, I feel like... Um, you know, I think there's a bit of a stigma still behind the whole word bisexual and people start to think that that's, oh, they're so promiscuous or, you know, oh, well, I'm in a, I'm in a girl-boy relationship so they just want to jump in with me. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works at all. 3CR. So normality has almost a reggae influence to it. Was that a sound that, that came about intentionally or was it something that just started to develop as you were writing the song? Um, it just sort of uh, came out, yeah. It's got a very quirky feel. I kind of I, – I do feel the, more of the pop, the pop beat um, to it than the, than the reggae. But, yeah, it just, it just kind of – how I started writing this song initially, actually, um, I had the loop laid down and then I started scatting the melody. I didn't actually write the words first. I just was, was singing like, I don't know why. And then I just like recorded that and then wrote <laughs> lyrics or words to the scat. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like the music really forms the, the kind of a basis for the song and then the lyrics come later. Is that how it worked? Yeah. For this, for this one, for normality particularly. Yep. Yeah. It came, uh, lyrics came second, which is strange because usually it's the other way around for me. But in this in this format, it, it's always um, the loop that comes first. Yeah. I wonder why that is with this track. Like, I guess it's been an unusual track anyway if you were kind of, you know, 
predicting kind of intuitively what was going to happen with COVID or something along yeah. those lines would happen. Yeah. It sounds like this 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 track shatters the norms in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely wanted to challenge like the preconceived, I guess, notion of what makes even like normal pop music, you know? Um, and I really want to want to push people's thoughts and feelings with how they can create music because I feel like sometimes, I, you know, it's getting a bit stale or, yeah, I just want to push people to be, a little bit experimental without me being pushed out of the category of being able to be played on the radio. Yeah, I really wanted to go, well, I'm going to write a pop song, but I'm going to write it differently and I'm still going to try and push it out as a normal, like, like to be classified as any other normal song that, that would be, you know, on radio. So is this a songwriting method you think you'll continue? Or, I mean, have you written other songs and you followed the same method or is it really just a one-off, do you think? Um, I think I would definitely do another another vocal EP. I mean, this this um, sort of technique developed on the streets busking. So, you know, I, I didn't have the money to always buy new equipment all the time and new guitars and new pianos and carry them all down. So I started just using my voice instead to emulate those sounds. And um, I've always trained my voice uh, a lot since I was a little girl and I know a lot of music theory. So I just linked it all together and thought I'll just – I'll just do this instead of <laughs> the other thing is, is uh, you may, you know, you may see that always touring with a band or like sort of playing shows with a band can be really hard and really, you know, not everyone's always available or costs too much. So um, it kind of gave me this ability to sort of play live solo and um, do something different rather than just use a guitar or a piano and voice. It's like, Hey guys, I'm going to use my voice to do everything <laughs> instead. <laughs> Did you find that busking and singing outdoors really strengthened your voice? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It um definitely strengthens your performance level because there is so much going on um around you and so easy to be sort of uh distracted or anxious and yeah, you kind of <laughs> put yourself in the middle of the street to be judged by anyone and everyone. So uh busking's definitely developed my stage presence and my confidence and um tested my anxiety levels <laughs> and the shakiness of my voice if I'm ever uh, feeling a bit nervous. But, yeah, it's been really great busking. So I guess it's really kind of, you know, enabled you to musically multitask. Yeah, totally. Yep. And uh, also not <laughs> not drop all my music equipment down the street while I try to carry it on a trolley <laughs> and, you know, try to keep it all on the trolley before I get to my spot. It sounds like you're looking forward to touring when COVID finishes, hopefully. Yep totally I cannot wait I am just today I wrote a post on my Instagram and I was like I miss my people and I miss my friends and I just yeah I'm, I'm dying to get back up on the stage because um I just want that connection sort of with followers and fans and to see people enjoy music again and like you know have that moment when they're just standing next to their friend and they're both like oh this is great and they have a drink in their hand and everyone's jolly and yeah cannot wait to get back on stage and it sounds like you'd be a great pub performer. Oh, would I? <laughs> I, can, I can just imagine like, you know, people, you know, at a pub and you really kind of, you know, working the room and people having a few drinks. And, <laughs> and that's the sense I got from your music video as well. I mean, it had a real party theme. <laughs> Tell us about the video. Yes. Did you like the video? I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the video is meant to be like kind of uh, questioning that whole thing of what is normal. It's like what is normal to me might be not normal to you. So for example, a lot of my friends have a nine-to-five job at a cafe or a nine-to-five job at a, in an office, and that's really normal to them. And then my schedule is so the opposite, and I'm usually working nights, and I can never see them, and we always miss each other. So 
I kind of started the film clip off at a cafe where I'm sort of in a normal job, but I imagine what a normal job would be in my head. <laughs> and if I was to run a cafe, that's how the cafe would look. <laughs> when I jump over the counter, it's like me jumping into my own my own head or my own world of what I imagine or what is normal, what would be normal to me at a cafe. <laughs> it almost had a kid's party theme to it, I think. <laughs> totally. It totally did because um, I put a post out on my Instagram before the film clip and I put it out to anyone. I said, anyone who wants to be in a film clip, rock up this place this time and we'll make it happen. And, um, yeah, so anyone that wanted to come came. So they're all a mix of um, – sort of followers and people I met on Burke Street, people I met at festivals um, and, yeah, a couple of friends and family. <laughs> it was good. It did have a great community feel to it, I thought. Yeah, that was the point. I just wanted to, yeah, anyone. And the only requirement was that you dressed as weird as you could that was normal to you. I love the scene towards the end where you're, like, pouring the bottles of milk over your head. Was that something spontaneous? That was my first idea. Um because there's a line in the song off milky drunk it twice. Um, and I can happily say as well for all those people out there listening, it's not real milk. It's fake milk. I also recycled the milk bottles. So, you know, thinking about all elements there. Um, yeah. So initially I'd filled the milk bottles up with just water, but you couldn't see if I put that all over myself, you couldn't see it. So we needed it to be obviously whiter and look a bit more like milk. Um, so I added some corn flour and random stuff from the cafe's kitchen, <laughs> mixed it all up like a protein shake. Yeah. So it was a one take thing as well. I couldn't stuff it up. So yeah, <laughs> I was very nervous, but excited. And, uh, yeah, it was just a one take. I had a little mini pool, like a blow up pool underneath me to try and catch the milk. <laughs> Didn't really catch very much milk, but yeah, it was good. Tanya, will normality be part of an album? Yeah, it's going to be part of an EP called Normality. So um, we've got, yeah, a few more tracks uh, on it that will come out. And, um, yeah, and then I've got I've also got an album coming out in 2021. All COVID-dependent. So um, the album in 2021 brings back my band, who are amazing, and um, I've written all the songs and everything for it. Uh, but this album's concept uh, will be also a bit of a community vibe. We want to get ever, like lots of people from different backgrounds and cultural backgrounds involved um, to make it really sort of inclusive. And uh, we're going to kind of fusion genre a few few things that have influenced me, like jazz and blues and pop and, you know, Beyonce and all sorts of people. Um, it's going to be a very happy album. And I've taken all the weird, awkward concepts or stories that, you know, maybe initially made me sort of heartbroken or initially sort of taught me a lesson, but then flipped them into humor. So for example, one of the songs <laughs> is called, um, don't, don't, I can't say the rude word, but don't your best friend. It's about, you know, not, <laughs> not crossing that line between friendship and lovers. And, um, yeah, so it's about sort of breaking 16 years of friendship, um, to become more and then it not working out and kind of talking about don't do that just just don't do that you know so it's kind of bringing in a lot of humor to negative situations and making them positive it sounds like you're quite a prolific songwriter <laughs> I love yeah I've, I've got to do something with my life you know so I try to put everything <laughs> into song as much as I can 
Awesome stuff. Well, I love normality. Tanya George, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. 3CR. Hi, we are the Lumberjills. Hello, Somni Lumberjills. And we're from Canada. So you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, and we just want to say support your local radio station. Way, hey, and away we go. Donkey riding, donkey riding, way, hey, and away we go, riding on a donkey.
and that was the psychedelic furs with love my way you're on in your face on 3cr with james well this week i chat with dr Catherine barrett about her latest projects queer strong and the kindness pandemic our queer strong's a project that is part of a broader project called finding strong and it's about recognizing that people are going through enormous hardship during COVID-19 and there's so much work that needs to be done. Um, But one of the things that we're inviting people to do is to find, to tell us about their strong, you know, what has made them strong or resilient. Not a lot of people like that word, but, you know, what has, has made them strong, what has enabled them to get through tough times. And the idea is that by sharing those stories, um, we'll give hope and inspire other people. And so, of course, um, as part of that Finding Strong project, we wanted to talk to queer folk um, because, you know, we've been through tough times. I think most people who are queer know that on a day-to-day basis, the microaggressions can mean a sort of hypervigilance and having to... um, you know, be careful and be strong and be resilient and, you know, not be looking at, you know, whoever's saying something queerphobic in the media. So the idea with Queer Strong is to document stories from LGBTIQ people about what strong means to us and how we found our strong. And the stories to date have been amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, We started with Malloy, who's an 86-year-old lesbian who had six years of conversion therapy, attempted so-called conversion therapy in her 20s, and she found her strong from that. She, you know, the psychiatrist told her that God wouldn't love her if she didn't stop her lesbian ways, Uh, and it took her a number of years and a lot of psychotherapy to actually turn the table around and go, you know what, Uh, I'm not mad, you are, Um, there's nothing wrong with me and I'm a lesbian and God loves me. And so it was actually that act of attempted conversion therapies for Malloy that just she found that sense of self for herself. And then by sharing her stories, the idea is to inspire other folk, you know, queer folk and, and the, the broader community um, to, you know, to think about what strong means to them and how we can build our strong. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. So tell us about the Appreciative Inquiry approach that Queer Strong uses. Yeah, well, the Appreciative Inquiry approach is, is you know, it's, it's, it's become quite big in the corporate world. And one of the things that I love about it is that it engages people, you know, when we look at thinking about improving something, quite often we go to what's wrong and how do we need to fix it. The Appreciative Inquiry approach is a kind of a philosophical approach that says, well, actually, the other way of doing this service better or getting better or getting stronger is by looking at what's actually working and strengthening that. So that's what we're doing because, you know, I think in in queer communities in particular, um, you know, the stats are still showing that there are, you know, mental well-being disparities, That you know, that we we are not equal yet. Uh, And all the work that's being done on that needs to continue. But alongside of that, if we can focus on what is it that we are doing well, what, is, what does strong mean in our communities? And by sharing those stories, what we're doing in the appreciative inquiry approach is really looking at, at building and, um, and strengthening that. So that's the appreciative inquiry approach. But one of the things that's been quite delightful for me to bear witness to is that is that the finding strong and queer strong are part of 
um, a project I set up called the Kindness Pandemic. So I set that up on the 14th of March uh, and, it, and it grew to half a million people uh, in under two weeks. And um, queerness is a really important part of that, of that campaign. And we've still got about 560,000 members and what we've been doing, the, the Queer Strong or the Finding Strong is a, is a collaboration uh, or is a partnership with Beyond Blue, which is incredibly important. Everybody knows or most people know that Beyond Blue has been doing amazing work in queer communities and it's also been supported by the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria. And what we've been doing is inviting queer folk to share their stories of Queer Strong in our Kindness Pandemic group, which I kind of imagine is like the broader community, maybe 90% heterosexual, cisgendered probably. Uh, and the response has been beautiful, beautiful. Andrew Rogers shared a post last week and it was about often the stories are about coming out or coming to terms with um, sexuality in particular at the moment rather than gender. We've not had a lot of gender diverse stories yet. I hope that changes. But um, the stories of, of coming out and, um, and, and, you know, feeling a bit lost a bit lost or a bit at sea and, and having depression or anxiety uh, and then finding community and that finding um, strength is, is the story that Andrew shared and being part of queer sporting clubs for Andrew. But the response to his post was the surprise for me. It was so beautiful. There are about 9,000 positive responses to Andrew's post and people just going, good on you and you're amazing and you know, we love the queers or, you know, people just being enormously supportive. And he had about, there are about 300 shares to his post. And so what I realised was that queer strong stories are incredibly important for LGBTIQ community, absolutely. But it's a way of educating the broader community as well too. It's a way of saying, you know what, we've actually been through stuff. You know, sometimes it can be tricky or difficult to be a queer person in a mostly straight world because there is still queer phobia out there. Um, and this is these are the things that we are doing, you know, to find our strength and to get through it and to educate the rest of the community about that is a way of educating people about inequality. So that that was really quite a delightful, um, quite a delightful thing for me. And and it happened with the other people that have posted as well too. They've had really positive, positive responses, which is fantastic. Catherine, why do you think the kindness pandemic has had such a massive reaction? I think because there was a bit of disquiet before COVID-19 actually. I think so many of us were sick and tired of the hate and intolerance, particularly on social media. And even though that was a relatively small number of people, they were very vocal, very angry, and and it wasn't just the queer fo queer phobia. It was also racism and ageism and sexism and ableism. And I think so many of us wanted, you know, wanted to be more connected and wanted to see less hate and for us to be more united. And so then when um, COVID nineteen hit us, and I set up kindness pandemic. It was a response to coronavirus, but it really tapped a chord with where people, what people wanted from society more broadly. And what a lot of people are saying to us now in the group is this is the way I want the world to be. I want to be in a world where I see people reaching out and supporting each other. And absolutely, absolutely, 
that is what we tried to have tried to create. You know, we've got a, a team of 12 amazing volunteers. Um, but what we want to do as well too is, is we are really committed to intersectional kindness. And it's that idea that, that kindness sh- should not be patronizing or paternalistic, that kindness should reach out to everybody. Everybody sh- has the right to acts of kindness. And one of the things that we notice is it's really easy to be kind to people we know and people we love and people we understand and people who are similar to us. But what we want to do is reach out to people who are marginalised and people who experience oppression. And um, the way we've been doing that is we've been working with groups that support people who are marginalised and saying, you know, could, could you work in partnership with us? And, you know, could some of your people please share their stories with our group? And what we find is that first person narrative, the stories touch the hearts of our group members. They generate compassion and then empathy. And the empathy or the stepping into somebody else's shoes is the place from which those acts of kindness come. So we've, you know, with our queer work, trying to to really make sure that um, we've got some queer inclusive campaigns happening. We're working with Blind Citizens Australia to do uh, work with people who are vision impaired, um, you know, some... some um, some fabulous, uh, particularly queer deaf community members as well, um, doing some work with people with dementia. Uh, we had a Black Lives Matter campaign and we've reached out to a couple of Aboriginal groups uh, and some refugee groups. And it's really about, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a group and a campaign response to COVID, but this, is, this could be a way of life. This could be a way of us living our lives in the longer term where we are more open to hearing about the the experiences of other people and and stepping into their shoes and understanding what it's like for other people. And I think the thing about acts of kindness as well too, you know, we're saying that the kindness that that we are interested in is not the fairy floss kind of feelings of kindness towards other people, you know, terribly sweet but then it's gone. You know, that doesn't change things. We're interested in action um, that's motivated by kindness. We're interested in transforming the lives of other people. And we are saying that acts of kindness can be so simple and don't need to cost anything. So if you are, you know, if you think about it from a queer perspective, that if you've, that if you've got straight or cisgendered folk who have queer neighbours, the very act of just saying good morning or hello as you pass someone in the street can send a message to them that, that, that you are valuing of them. Uh, and, you know, if we did that en masse, we could relieve a whole heap of marginalisation. So, you know, from those really simple acts to people doing some really complex and uh, incredibly important actions for change, it's the whole gamut, really. Of course, you've devoted a lot of your working life the last few years to helping people to tell their stories. How'd you find yourself in that position? Tell us about that journey. Um, well, I sort of feel like I've... Uh, my professional career has been a commitment to social justice from the outset. I mean, I start, started my professional career as a nurse working in aged care, and I tell you what, we've got a long way to go before we are respectful of older people and we've addressed ageism in this country. And and so I think that that totally put a fire in my belly. But also to, you know, my family and friends experienced a number of uh, injustices and that another fire in my belly 
but then probably my coming out uh, was was really, you know, that realisation that I was still fundamentally a wonderful person but the world or parts of the world would see me differently uh, as a queer woman. That, um, that lit another fire. And, yes, so for the last... Uh, 15 years I've been really focused, you know, as an ac- ac- academic initially, but then finding that in academia I did incredibly important research work, but it didn't necessarily translate into cultural change. So I set up a social enterprise that's primarily concerned with um, addressing ageism and building respect for older people. But Alice's Garage is the queer work that I do as part of that. Uh, and then so for the last five years, um, yes, the focus has been as a social enterprise has been very much on um, address, addressing inequalities and injustice. And, you know, some of the work, you know, preventing sexual assault of older women and the work with older trans and gender diverse people, I think we've talked about before, James, older trans and gender diverse people who have their gender identity, res- gender expression restricted by families. Um, you know, some of th- some of this work is incredibly important to me, and you know, I'm. I think I think one of the things for me working with older people is I'm re- really and having had a, f- a number of friends die is I'm incredibly aware of how precious life is, and my time here on on the planet I want to put to really good use, um, and yeah, so that's that's why I do the work that I do, and I think the finding strong campaign for me is about creating something that's positive and constructive. It's not about, it doesn't dismiss or discount anybody's experiences of difficulty and hardship and absolute horror around COVID-19, but alongside of that, not instead of it, it's about saying, you know, how can we learn from people that have been through tough times? How can we learn what they have learned about being strong so we can take those lessons into our own lives and get through this mess that COVID has created? Catherine Barrett, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks for the invitation, James. I always love speaking with you. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out as Blondie. Rapture.
with my mind. Flash is fast, flash is cool. Francois is far, flash ain't no do. And you don't stop, shoot shot. Go out to the parking lot and get in your car and drive real far and drive all night. And then you see a light and it comes right down and lands on the ground. And out comes a man from Mars and you try to run, but he's got a gun and he shoots you dead and he eats your head. And then you're in the man from Mars. You go out at night. Three, six.